That'll get your motor running. <clears throat> Take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. Did I shake you up enough last week by reversing the service around? No? Alright. Well, that's it. I can handle that. <clears throat> Today we... Whoa. Today we actually will finish our study in the book of James. Ron, that's not funny. We have spent 31 weeks walking through this book, and we could have spent 30 more if we had broken down even further. Uh, and I hope that you gathered or gleaned something out of what we've talked about over the last almost year. I definitely have as, a, as your pastor, it's touched my heart, and that's where it needs to start, just so you know that. But in James chapter 5, let's uh, start in uh, verse 13. It says, is anyone among you suffering? <clears throat> Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. Let me just stop there, because we didn't hit this verse last week, and we're going to sort of go over it this week. But understand, just in that passage, what you see there is this. Sin affects your prayers. You get that? We were talking last week about those that were hurting from uh, persecution, remember? And they were the ones, that's what the passage is written in context of, but then he, James goes back and he talks about sins. He says you need to, it says if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. can't be forgiven if you don't ask. He says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. And here's where we are this week. Brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would take the reading of your word and that you would put it in our hearts. And Father, we know that you promised that whenever it is read, it does not return void. So this morning, as we study these couple of verses, as we close the study on this letter of James, Lord, I pray that you would challenge us. And if there is a reason we need to apply this personally, that you would help us to do so. <clears throat> Let me ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close this, this study here in the book of James, we're going to look at, at these last two verses, and we're going to try at the end to sort of review some of the things that we've learned over the last year. We probably won't get to many of them, but the point is, is that we apply what we've talked about 
James comes to this end here, and he sort of just, it's a weird way to end the book, the letter, addressing sin is what he's addressing, someone that's wandered away, and it sort of comes to a very abrupt, abrupt stop. And James, as we've talked about over the last year, he, he's very forthright in what he says. He doesn't pull any punches one way or the other. But as we get started in talking this week, I want to give you, uh, well, you changed that pretty quick, but that's all right. Leave that up there. Leave that up there, good. I want to give you a mental picture to put these two verses as James closes the letter into your minds, sort of to give us a picture. It might not be the best picture, but it's the one that came to my mind, all right? There are different opinions as to who James has in mind as he writes these verses. Um, some say that he's writing to those who's described in the book as having deceiving faith. Those who thought they were saved, who talked like they were saved, but they really weren't saved because their lives didn't reflect that, that, uh, that message. Remember the theme verse is James 1.22, right? Be ye doers of the word, or be you. Yeah. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. So some say that he's writing to them. Right? Others say he's writing to those who are described in this book and have wandered away from the truth. And they're living contrary to what they say they believe. And I believe it is the latter that we're gonna that James is addressing. And we'll talk about why in a minute. But just to give you a picture. One of the things that's always been on my, I don't know if you want to call it a bucket list or not, because I've had that desire since I was young. Always wanted a garage, never had a garage. Always wanted to have an old car in a garage, never had that. Right? The point is, is this. One of the things that, that is on my list is as I've always wanted to do is to restore an old car. Right? Ron's had the privilege of doing that to several. Right? That's right. right? But one of mine is this. One of my favorite cars of all times is a 1969 Ford Mustang Mach 1. All right, you there with me? All right, there's a picture of one. All right, it's a picture of one. It's an unrestored 1969 Ford Mustang Mach 1. It doesn't look like much, does it? No. No. And it's totally unusable in its condition, right? See, that's the kind of car I can afford. <laughs> the point is, is that in its current condition, it is, it is unusable, correct? Correct. It's covered with dirt. It's ridden with rust. And it, and it falls apart. One question I want you to ask as you look at this picture is this, and one that may not have been, is that a car? Is it? On. It's not a trick question. Even the way it sits, it is a car. All right. You may say it's not, but in theory, it is a car. But there isn't much there. If I were to go and take my truck and get a trailer and find where that car was in that field, wherever it is, it might be around here. It sort of looks like Florida. Right? And I were to put that car onto that trailer. Drive that down to my garage, which couldn't fit in my garage anyway, but a garage. Put it in that garage. And then if I were to take it painstakingly, take that car apart, 
chop all the rust away, grind out all that bad stuff that's in there, cut and remove what's broken, replace, fix the holes and pull out the dents. One day, it will get to a point that is ready for paint. And if I paint it and it looks like the next picture, put the next picture up. There you go. This picture of a, a totally restored 1969 Mach 1 car, is that a car? Mm -hmm. You better say yes. <laughs> that's a car, all right? Even if you're a Chevy fan, that's a car, all right? That's a car. Is it beautiful? Is it usable? Yes. The car left in its previous state with no intervention on the part of a person or another ability to fix it would be left to rot until it literally disappeared in that field. But in the hands of the one who saw its potential and one who had desire to painstakingly invest sweat and money, lots of money, and tears and care for it, it can be used again and beautiful. Now, I show you that picture for a reason. This isn't the best example, but it is, is an example of what we're going to look at here this morning. In a roundabout way, I believe this can give us a picture of what James is writing about as he closes his letter. The person who puts that much attention to that car loves that car, correct? There's a lot of love that goes into that. I want you to keep that in mind. He has addressed, James has, all the issues that these New Testament believers were experiencing. And we can go back through and list them all. And he closes with the challenge to those who are sound in the faith. Those who, as according to chapter 1, have allowed the trials to shape and, and, and produce that maturity in them. That he <clears throat> talks about what God's purpose is. They're mature. These mature believers are to go to those who are living contrary to what Scripture says in an effort to start, and here's the picture, the restoration process. And just keep that in mind as we talk about this. So if you were taking notes, I don't have them for you, but this would be number 12, capital X, capital I, capital I, and the bulk of all of your other notes. And it's true faith is shown by speaking the truth and love. Let's go back to that verse again, 19 and 20. Brother, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. Amen. The word he starts out with is the word brother. If you go through the book, he's used that word 19 times. We know that he's writing this book to those who are in the church, correct? Correct? Yes. Okay, let's get that down. And we've seen it for, th throughout the whole letter. And that word means this. One who shares with another a mutual life. So as he writes to this group of believers, and all the times that he's mentioned that word brother, he's writing to those who share a mutual life. It's written here to those who are in the church. It's written to one who is a believer. And I want to start out this way. A capital A under your notes there would be this. 
I think in, there's an unwritten caution in this particular section here that we need to draw attention to before we move into all of what he is talking about. And the caution is this. It's the caution about the possibility of falling. The person he's writing to, we can deduce, is a Christian. Everybody agree? And just a reminder where this church started and how closely they lived with each other, we can go back to the book of Acts just as a reminder. In Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 45, it says this. Remember, this church that James pastored came from the day of Pentecost and all of those times and all the things that happened through the book of Acts. But it starts in chapter 2. It says, Then those who gladly received his word, it says, were baptized. In other words, they got saved and then they were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Wouldn't that be nice to happen here? It will. All right, it will. And, so, and they continued, it says, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayer. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now listen. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And I want you to get the picture of, of what this church was. Because when you look at our church, that's not what they were. Okay? Not, not that they were, were Christians like they were. But the way they lived was differently. They're not like us in the fact that, that we come together in most cases, what, once, twice a week. And we see each other. If you're not involved during the week, you don't see much of some of you that come on Sunday morning. This is the only time we rub shoulders together. This was not like that church was. These folks live together. So as he's addressing this in this passage, as he closes this letter, he's writing to those who knew each other intimately. Not intimately in that weird sense, but intimately in friendship and fellowship and brotherhood. Because they were together all the time. They went to work. They lived together. They came back. And that's the picture of the church at that particular time. So these people knew each other very well. So the reference here to brethren really means one who shares with another a mutual life. It wasn't just Jesus as Savior. It was they were together. So as he writes to them, keep that picture in mind. He says, if, if anyone is among you, James could be referring to those who he has said through the letter had deceiving faith because it, it's obvious there were unchristians in this particular church. And he has addressed them. He could be writing to them. But I don't think that's who he's talking to. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go on. A true believer can leave the path, but a true believer that leaves the path does not stop being a believer. Okay? All right, just so we got that down. And there's a caution here for all of us. It is possible for any of us, if we're not careful, to buy into the world's philosophy. And look, we can go back and look at the verses that he's talked about before. To buy into the world's philosophy. And commit, as we've talked about, spiritual adultery in living like the world and not like the word tells us. The word if in there, again, reinforces the fact that this is a believer who has fallen away 
The old word we used to use, let me see if you remember the old word we used to use when somebody fell away. What was it? Backslidden. You don't hear that word much anymore, do you? No. Backslidden. In other words, they slid back, not out of salvation, but they slid back to the way they used to live. So the person is a Christian. Number two would be this. It says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, Number two is the pathway, path away is deceptive. If anyone wanders from the truth, here, here's where some draw the, the, the thought that James is talking to those with deceiving faith. My notes are scrolling too fast. Wanders, some scholars say that the word means apostate, which would mean a fake Christian. In the context James writes, and the fact that he writes to brothers and says, if any among you, it's pretty hard to translate the word to mean apostate. John MacArthur draws that particular result, and I would disagree. Although you could apply it somewhat into what he's talking about. I don't think that's what James intended here. It says that he wanders from the truth. The word wander means this, to go astray. To go astray. And it would suggest a gradual moving away from the will of God. The word is used in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus uses it. And he says, if a, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to the one that wandered off? Amen. Same word. The question isn't, is the sheep a sheep, is it? No. The question is, is the sheep in the flock, is it? No. The question is, how did the sheep wander off in that passage? And we can draw the same conclusion in what James is talking about. We all know sheep, right? Sheep are intelligent animals, correct? You laugh. Some of you laugh. Some of you go, what's he talking about? Sheep are dumb, right? I think that's sort of why Jesus always equates us to sheep, because we can be pretty dumb, right? They, they, they need leadership. They need guidance. A sheep can be easily distracted. And think about it. This sheep, why did he wander off? Um, he might have been distracted. You ever watch that? I don't remember what kid's show it was on where it said squirrel. Everybody ever watch that? Nobody's uh, okay. Movie up. Some of you guys, all right? Where the dog gets distracted. Well, the picture here is this. A sheep is easily distracted, and he's, his attention can change, and it can leave him in the wrong direction. He may see a spot of grass over here. The herd's going this way, but he's going that way. And before too long, he's gone. He wanders off. He never stopped being a sheep. And just for your attention, because we're going to be back in Matthew 18 later on, but isn't it a coincidence that Jesus' next words in Matthew 18, after the parable of lost sheep, are his instructions on how to deal with sin? It's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. <coughs> Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter 2.25. He says, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd, capital S, and overseer, capital O, of your souls. In James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, uh, James gave this warning. He said, let, not, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, neither does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted... When he is drawn away by his own lusts 
for his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth what? Death. Death. The end of the verse there in verse 20, it says, Let him know that he who run, turns a sinner from error and from the error of his way will save a soul from death. Was James addressing in verse 13 lost people? No, he was addressing the Christians in the church. So the person is a Christian, the pathway is deceptive, and the problem is doctrine. If you go back to verse 19, Brother, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, Truth. Where do we find the truth? In the book. In the Bible. In the Bible. They didn't have scripture at that time, so they relied on the apostles' teachings. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, it says he gave some to be apostles and prophets. For the first part of the church life, they didn't have this book. So the apostles, the ones who walked with Jesus, the ones who were taught by Jesus, the ones who ministered with Jesus, relate to them what Jesus talked about and taught them. Until the scripture was put together later on. The problem is doctrine. The truth, John 14, 6. I am the way, Jesus says, and I am the truth. John 17, 17. Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And James is using the same word that Jesus used. And as he closes this letter, he gives them a call to bring back one. Or bring one back from, to the truth. He leaves us with this unwritten caution, I believe, to us to be careful. Because uh, I think it's in one of the Corinthians that says, uh, be careful, let, take heed lest you fall. And I think that might be sort of what's unwritten here. A little deviation from truth can lead to a great divide. He's addressed this all through his letter. Those who claim true faith but live the opposite. Most often, one does not fall into a great sin all of a sudden. It usually starts first with just a little deviation from truth. Go back to the garden. How did Satan confront Eve? He put doubt in the truth that God told Adam. Exactly what happened. One little, did God really <coughs> Did God really? He, he's just trying to keep something good from you. Just, just a thought there. It usually starts a little. In James 1, 19 through 22, it says, So then, my beloved brother, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. If you're just a hearer, the word goes in one ear and out the other. And that can happen with those who know the Lord too. When a Christian wanders from doctrine, why do we teach doctrine? Because it's truth. Doctrine is, is little bits, actually the whole book's doctrine, but it's little bits of truths. God's truths. Why do we teach it? Because it's important. When a Christian wanders from doctrine or truth, truth, eventually he wanders from duty. The picture? 
When our beliefs are changed, so is our behavior. When we wander from his word, we will also wander in our walk. So he says, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and in that I think we take that caution, B in your notes would be this, and this is addressing what he's talking about. It's a call to confront for the purpose of restoration. The Bible calls us um, the church, right? What's the biblical word that means church? Anybody know? Everybody's going, uh, ecclesia. Ecclesia, we talked about this several months ago. Ecclesia means called out ones. But we are called out of the world with the responsibility of being stewards of the glory of God. Everybody agree with that? Right? Be also being story, stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everybody agree with that? With that calling also comes the responsibility for the sake of both of those, the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also for the individual who has erred to confront untruth in teaching and behavior. We're called to the very, this very hard task of bringing a fellow believer back to in, in first in repentance and then restoration. Sin's a hard thing to deal with, especially in the body. Um, and, and sometimes we don't do it the right way. Sometimes we do it the wrong way with the wrong motives. And, and, and other times we don't deal with it. One of the biggest problems in the American church is that sin is left undealt with. And what happens is that cancer spreads throughout the church. And before too long, their doctrines are all changed. In James chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back. Now, be careful. We are part of the process, but we are not the whole of the process. The Holy Spirit's involved here, too. We have the responsibility to, in love, confront those who have strayed from the truth. Always with the purpose of restoration and not punishment. Hear that. Hear that. Restoration, not punishment. Punishment may come with an unrepentant, hardened heart. But the goal is not to slam them for their sin. The goal is to lovingly bring them back into the restored relationship with their Heavenly Father and with God. Paul says it this way. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. <clears throat> Brethren, if any man or if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, the key is that word spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In the context of those verses, the verses before that Paul writes are those about walking in the Spirit. Everybody remember that? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Those are the verses before he gets to chapter 6. This is not calling individuals to be church police officers. We have enough of them. We've had enough of them through the years. I grew up with a lot of them. 
like the old nuns that walk around with the rulers to smack your fingers. That's not what this is. In an article titled, Confronting Sin Versus a Critical Spirit, what is the difference between seeing sin in someone else's life and confronting it and having a critical spirit? And there's a fine line. The key distinction between recognizing behavior that's ungodly and passing judgments on others is the posture of the heart, our heart. Are we aware of other people's mistakes because they trust us and have confided in us? Or have we appointed ourselves the moral police so as to justify examining blemishes in everyone else's behavior? Is our ultimate goal to help restore prodigals into a redemptive relationship with Jesus? Or do we have a hidden agenda to elevate ourselves by condemning those around us? And it closes those statements with, be honest now. You see, the difference between those two is this. Restoration is the goal. Restoration is the goal. And in that statement that this person makes that wrote this article, see, in order for you to effectively be able to confront another brother, you might want to get to know him a little bit. See, remember the, the close relationship that these people lived in. They rubbed elbows close all week long. They knew each other intimately. They probably trusted each other a little bit. Right? See, here's the problem. There's people who walk into a Sunday morning service and can say they're part of the church, and they walk around whipping people on the hands. Nobody even knows who they are. The, the point is, is that in order to be able to know somebody and to love them and to care intimately for them, you've got to know who they are. It's not just a face that walks in on a Sunday morning. The church doesn't need any more moral police. This is a calling to love, to loving point out, lovingly point out to one who has strayed the, in error, and to lovingly care for them as they correct that error and take care of the damage caused by it, and in the end, restoration. It's a process. It's a process. And if you are not part of that process, keep your mouth shut. If you don't care enough to be part of the healing process, you have no right to point out somebody else's sin. Amen. Do you see the picture here? It's very important. It's very important, especially in the area that we live in. I'll just leave that to where it is, but you need to be careful. You need to be careful. See, sin is not a fruit issue. It is a it's a root issue or a heart issue. It's a heart issue. We want to we deal with the fruit when the problem is the person's heart. Amen. And if you lovingly took the picture of that car, the person that shined that car up, he, it was love. Every one of those strokes of sandpaper and the, the cutting off of the rust was done in love so that the end picture would look like this. And in church discipline and in dealing with sin in somebody else's life, that is the picture that we and the process that we are to be part of. James 5.20, again, says, Brother, if any of you want, 19 and 20, if any of you wanders away from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death 
and cover a multitude of sin. Number one, under the be in your notes, there's a call to repentance. The phrase there, turns him back, literally means to turn around or to turn back. Everybody knows the picture of repentance, right? Repentance is a 180-degree change of direction. All right? when, I, when I understood that I was lost and I was following me, even though I was only little and didn't understand that it was me, I was my own God at that time, and I recognized that Jesus did for me what he did, and I turned from following there and followed him. It's 180 degree, a change of heart and a change of direction. Repentance starts here. It starts here. It starts here. When somebody wanders from truth and we go and we're a part of that process of bringing them back, we need to start with the heart. When I grew up in, in school, when I was younger, in, in, the, in the school that I went to, although I don't remember it, maybe they did, and maybe it's not a fair judgment to say that because the school was a good school, but I always remember dealing with my behavior. Steve, stop doing that. Steve, dress this way. Steve, do this. Steve, don't do that. I never heard Steve. Jesus loves you and wants you to live differently. Now, maybe it was said. Maybe I just wasn't listening. But the point is, is this. You cannot deal with the behavior. You may conform that person to a certain image for a while. But unless the heart changes, that behavior will come out again. Yes. So it's a change of repentance. It's a recognition of wrong thinking. And here he's talking about them following error. And you're turning them back to truth. It's wrong thinking and wrong living. He's writing to those who knew what it was to walk on the right path, and he was challenging them to get back on track. There are those who say that you can walk away from salvation if you choose to. I would agree with that if your salvation was dependent on you. Romans 8 makes it very clear who does the saving. It's Jesus. It makes it very clear who keeps you until that time when you go home. And it's Jesus. And the work was once and done. And nothing can change that status. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says that there, there's nothing created that can separate us from the love of God. There's a difference between the sin of a non-believer. James has drawn the picture of true faith. As we've looked at, and although it is not perfect living, it is spirit-led. A non-believer habitually sins, committing the same sin over and over and over and over again with no conviction of wrong. And we've talked about that as we walk through the letter here. Listen, if you are here and there's a habitual sin that you know is in your life, and that you've, you constantly are stuck in this cycle, and there is no conviction from the Holy Spirit... The Bible says you're probably not saved. A believer cannot do that. He may wander, but he will not do it habitually as in a lifetime. A true believer will be convicted of sin in his heart and eventually will come back. Amen. I firmly believe that. Me being one of those people. There was not a moment in that 10-year period when I walked my own way 
that I didn't feel the conviction of the Lord. When I came back to the Lord, it wasn't for salvation, it was for restoration. The responsibility of our calling is to encourage the person to come to repentance. Speaking the truth in love. Number two, it's also a call to rejuvenate. It says, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death. Death could be translated, or could be translated punishment. Eternal death is not the picture here. The word James uses here is in a reference to physical death. 1 John 5, 16 and 17 says this, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. Then he says, there is a sin leading to death. When a sinner has become so hard-hearted that he or she does more damage to God's glory and the purpose of the gospel, and they are unrepentant, sometimes, God will take them out. God will take them out, take them home. He'll take them out prematurely, and it's through physical death. Therefore, we, when we are able to, with the Holy Spirit's help, bring our brother back to God, sometimes we're saving them from death. A couple examples in the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5. What did they do? They lied. Gone. Moses sinned by striking the rock rather than speaking to it. He did not get to lead his people into the promised land, did he? No. Instead, he died and God buried him on Mount Nebo. Hebrews 11 talks about God chastening believers who he loves. But understand this, God will not allow the sin of believers to go unchecked. In 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, it says this, Hand this man over, about an unrepentant person, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.30, when we take communion, this is a verse we start out with. We're entire verses that we start out with about making sure we're right and clean before God, before we come as, as believers to the table. It says, that is why many among you are weak and sick. And then it says, and a number of you have fallen asleep or died. Listen, God does not always, always uh, does not allow us always to continue in the path of sin. And this is talking about, number one, it's a challenge to us individually, but it's also a challenge as we see our brothers and sisters that we walk side by side here. Every week we see them in those sins, and then we care enough to come alongside and say, listen, you're headed down a one-way street the wrong way. You're going to get to heaven. There's going to be consequences. And it's that love for that person, the brother, that causes us to come alongside and, and confront that. We're all called to confront and to encourage those in this condition to wake up and get right. We all know people that have, have wandered away. I think if we went around, we could name them all. Some of them are in our own family. And what do we do? If 
If it's your daughter, it's your son, or it's your grandson, what do you do? You smack them over the head every time they do something wrong? No, you lovingly try to, try to bring them to repentance by pointing out the error in truth. Because this is the problem. The heart's the problem. Number three, it's a call to restoration. James 5.20 again, Let him who turns a sinner from the error of his ways, uh, oh, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Cover there means to hide or to veil. A person who repents and returns to the Lord has his sins covered. Now, be careful with that statement. We know that Jesus took away all our sins. All right? But the picture here is, is the only way through this atonement is Jesus. But when a Christian repents and comes back, the picture is that his sins can no longer be seen. They have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103.12 God remembers them no more, neither should we. It says covers. That's that picture of love. Be careful that we understand this truth. Love does not sweep the dirt under the carpet. Where there is true love, there is also truth. In Ephesians 5.15, Paul ex exhorts those believers to speak the truth in love. There was error in the church. Some people are always willing to speak the truth, but they don't do it in love. They're judgmental and condemning and critical. Some people speak the speak in love with no truth. They are so concerned about speaking softly and nicely, they wonder from the truth of God's word. And there's a balance between the two. Jesus is saying to speak the truth in love in such a way that it will bring the wanderer home. Remember the picture of that car. The one that was doing the, the, the restoration. It wasn't just the polishing of the paint at the end. There was a lot of ripping and tearing and cutting and grinding and grunting and groaning and all of that that went in that process. But it was a, a long process. And that person didn't stop because he saw what the end would look like. And when we look at each other, we need to love each other enough to tell the truth. We need to love each other enough to try and... and, 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 and and get involved enough to bring that person back from error. To point them to the truth. And to confront the error. Turn to Matthew chapter 18 and we'll close with this passage. Just so you understand the process of dealing with sin. James, as he closes, he's dealt in the verses we dealt with last week, those who have suffered persecution, and he's comforted them. And now in the end, he's telling them, listen, help the rest come along, those who are struggling with sin. In Matthew chapter 18, we start verse 12, which is where those other verses I read earlier are from. It says, what do you think? <clears throat> If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? 
And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, just stop there and think of the shepherd's love. The sheep wanders. The shepherd leaves the flock to go for that one. Because the next verse, what does Jesus start out with? The word what? Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. That doesn't mean come in on Sunday morning and tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, then it says, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. He says, assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them. Amen. By my Father in heaven. Now keep in context what he's talking about here. He's talking about sin. He's not talking about two people agreeing we're going to get rich and that God's going to take care of that. That's not what he's saying here. He says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in the midst of them. And in, in that, that verse in its context, just so you understand, it's a verse we take out of context all the time. If I'm by myself in a room, is God there? Yes. Right? If, if James is by himself in a room, is God there? Yes. Right. So does it take two or three of us to have God's presence? No. no. What he's saying in those verses is when you're dealing with discipline problems, when it gets to the end, and we'll deal with that in a minute, but when it gets to the end, God is in the midst of that discipline, and he's guiding and directing, even if it becomes separation. That's the, the, or the thought of those verses. But what I want to point to you is this. Go back to verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, it says what? Go and tell the pastor. Is that what your verse says? Go and tell a deacon. Go and tell the sound guy. Go and tell your friend. What's it say? Go to him. It says go to him. This is the problem where most things grow beyond. If we would take care of issues between each other and it would stay with each other, it would never affect the church. Instead, we incorporate everybody else. Yes. Listen, if somebody offends you, love and trust them enough that they care enough about you to hear the truth from you. And tell them. So if you ever come to me and, I, and you start and I say, hey, and some of you have, go talk to them. That's the first step. That's the first step. It says there, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. In other words, the issue is taken care of. The second thing he says there, but if he will not hear, then what does it say? Take with you one or two more. Witnesses. Witnesses. That would be, in most cases in church discipline, it would be take one or two leaders with you. But it could also be take a few other people with you, not for the sake of gossip, not for the sake of destroying, but for the sake of that person, you go and you confront them together. Because sometimes 
He may not hear from you, or she may not hear from you, but maybe from one of these others they will. And it goes on in the verses and it says, um, if he refuses to hear, it says, to hear them, tell it to the church. And that's where you bring it into the leadership, into the deacon, pastor and deacon role. The process is one-on-one. -on -one. Same thing James was talking about back in, in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5. If, if you see your brother in error, you're not to go tell the pastor, are you? No, you're to go to him or her and in love for the sake of that person, for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the gospel, confront. If that doesn't work, then you take somebody else. The process is that way. And if the person is still unrepentant, and, and you bring it before the church, meaning it goes before the leaders of the church. And if they're still unrepentant, the Bible says you turn them over to Satan to deal with. Not for death, but for the punishment consequence sake. In other words, if the process ultimately would end in excommunication. So you're going to kick us out of church? I would rather kick you out of church than to have the sin undealt within the church and suffer the consequences of what that would cause inside. And pray that you'll get repentant and come back. But the picture there is simply, as we talk about this, is that, listen, we need to love each other enough to speak the truth in love. This is a hard message. And James just sort of ends the quote like that with it, and it's, it's, it's like there's nothing beyond. It's not like grace to you and peace and live on happy, is it? It's, it's no, deal with it. Listen, I want you to understand the, the commodity that we have. When you accepted Jesus as your Savior and you became a child of God, you became a son. You were adopted according to John 1.12. And you, according to 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're given a stewardship that you have been entrusted with. It is the glory of God, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is not anything in this world that is more important than that. And we as a body of believers, we also, together, are given that stewardship. And when something affects that, it needs to be dealt with. See, you, you may go home, and, and I know a lot of you personally, all right? You may go home, and you think nobody in this church knows what you're doing at home. But understand this. If you're doing things against God's word, it doesn't matter if I know. God knows. And whether you know it or not, your sin affects us. If I go home and I do something wrong, and I don't confess it, and I don't forsake it, and I'm not repentant, do you think it's going to affect you? You better believe it will. You should care enough about me. You should care enough about this church to come and talk to me. You should care enough about the glory of God ultimately. And that's what James is saying. That's what James is saying. So be careful the way you live. Because it does affect the rest of us. Specifically those who are members here. Specifically. Because you made a commitment in a bond with us that you were going to live according to God's word. 
Membership's a privilege. That shouldn't hinder anybody from being a member. You should strive to live that way because we all want to. We all should want to live that way. The point is, how do we close this? <laughs> I'm not beating anybody up. Just understand the severity of what we're talking about and what James deals with here. He didn't pull any punches all throughout the letter, did he? And he addresses, he addressed those who were being persecuted and were suffering from that persecution. He has addressed those who were not saved and had that deceiving faith. And in this last part of the letter, he's saying, listen, I've written all of this stuff and all these things that, that represent some of the characteristics of the way some of you are living. And here's how you get it right. So as we close, let me just challenge you this one. Is there anything in your life that hinders the glory of God from shining as brightly as it should? See, we are that light on a shining hill that the Jerusalem was back in the day. And you can take one of these light bulbs out, all right, and if they were still connected to the, to the electric, all right, and that electric stays connected, the brightness of that bulb doesn't change, does it? It doesn't. But if I were to go outside and get some mud, and I'd splash it on there, does the brightness become affected? Yes. Yes, and the more you put on, the less brighter it becomes, right? That's what sin does to the reflection of God in us. When we allow sin in our lives, it dims down God's glory. Not that it affects God's glory, because nothing affects God's glory. And what we've read about today is this. There can come a point when, when God snuffs you out. I don't know when that point is, but I'm not willing to take that chance. Is there anything in your life that James has described throughout this letter that He's now saying, listen, get it right. Get it right. And for the rest of us, listen, I, I would challenge you. You don't realize how, maybe you do, this might not be the right way to say it, how precious you all are and how precious we are together. Do you love the person sitting near you enough to trust them enough that there's something that they need to hear, you'll tell them? Or do you love and trust those around you enough that if they come and talk to you, that you'll listen? And see, the end picture is this. A body that works and strives and lives together and shines God's glory. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't it? That car reflects the person that's Spend all the time working on it, did it not? That's what your life is on this earth. Father, we thank you for this day. God, I don't know where this message falls. I know we all at different times have issues that we need to deal with. God, I pray that if there is any of us that are struggling with some things, Lord, that you would point them out and help us to deal with them. Father, I pray that if there's any of us that see something that maybe we need to talk to a friend about, that we would trust you 
as you say in Matthew, that two or three, that, that you're there, but that we would trust you, we would trust them enough to speak the truth in love. Because the thing that's at stake here is your glory in the gospel. It's not me, it's not them, it's your glory. That's the commodity we've been entrusted with, and things we do affect the ability of us to reflect that to the world outside. God, if there's someone here that doesn't know you as Savior, Father, may they understand that they were born in sin because of what Adam did. Born separated from you. Destined to eternal death, separation from you. But you demonstrated your own love toward all of us. And that while we were still in our sins, Jesus died on the cross for us. And with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, I pray if there's someone here that needs that, Lord, that they would come front during the invitation. And let us walk through scripture. Show them just how great a God you are. And Father, I pray for this congregation, Lord, that we um, would continue to be usable for you. And Father, that we would continue to see lives touched and souls changed. And we thank you for your restoring grace. Because I think probably most of us in this room have that one time or another wonder. And someone, if it wasn't a person, it was the Holy Spirit, lovingly guided us back and helped us to get right with you.